Men, what if we could do life better? What if we were more resilient and more confident? What if we got our priorities sorted and stuck to them? The world needs strong men. The Whole Man Academy podcast, hosted by life coach Anthony Asprey, that's me, is here to help you become the best version of yourself and make the most of your life at work and at play. Each week, myself and the Whole Man Academy team will be talking to inspiring people from all walks of life whose stories and strategies will empower you to become a better man. Let's get the conversation going, let's get men talking, and let's do life better. So welcome to the Home Man Academy podcast. Uh, my guest today is a dear friend of mine, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Hello. <laughs> uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Now, folks, you're in for a treat. Uh, Michelle and I have spent quite a few hours uh, at a bar, usually with glasses of wine, <laughs> talking about the wonderful experience this woman has. So um, I, I'd really appreciate it for our listeners, Michelle, if you could just do a quick introduction about who you are and what you do with your life at the moment, please. Okay, so um, I'm Michelle Mills Porter. Um, I'm, what am I? What am I, Scott? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm a speaker, I'm a professional speaker, um, but that's not the be all and end all. Uh, I'm a consultant, a behavior profiler. Um, The important thing for me is to share the the lessons that I've learned um, and, and help other people to experience those lessons without having to go through some of the crap that I've been through, basically. So that's in in a nutshell. That's that's right. it. Um, what that brings in terms of work can be under the umbrella of trainer, consultant, speaker, whatever. It, it's yeah. all good. Yeah, you're a serial entrepreneur as well, though, aren't you? You've 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 not you've been no stranger to the business world. Well, you know, I've had some successes and stuff, but I tend to think that serial entrepreneurs have got a bit of money, and that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now, what what one of the things that I mean, I'd like to just dive straight in, if you don't mind, Michelle, because uh, the, I know there's there's a deep story here that, that I would love our listeners to hear. Um, one of the things that, that attracted me to you when I first met you, it wasn't your purple hair or anything. It was it was the fact that you uh, you told me a story um, about an experience you had in your life uh, that involved a tsunami. And it blew me away. Um, would you mind telling us that story um, from the beginning to the end? Um, take as long as you like. Uh, and, and I might interject occasionally, ask you some questions. But I, I, I would think our listeners would really like to hear that story. So, Michelle, would you mind telling us that, that story? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was running my business, the business I'd started from scratch. And um, and that was all going fabulously. Um, we were winning every single award going. I was the youngest company in the country to ever win investors in people. And I was properly riding the crest of a wave um, and really loving it. So decided to take a few holidays um, and Stuart, my partner, and I decided uh, to learn to dive with a dive centre in Bromsgrove. And we took a couple of holidays and found ourselves in some magnificent places like the Maldives and all sorts. And then we took our first ever holiday um, away over Christmas and um, and we went to Sri Lanka um, on a diving holiday with our dive team. And we'd been out there a couple of days um, and, and then it was um, Christmas Day and 
on Christmas Day, we had the most amazing party thrown for us by the dive centre that was right next to the hotel on the beach. Um, and we just had the most magnificent party. You know, we were there in the early hours of the morning um, and, you know, promising that we were going to get up in the morning and go for a dive with each other. Um, and, uh, and that's what we did. We stumbled to our rooms and we said that we'd meet in the morning and go for a dive. And we got up in the morning and um, we went down to breakfast and it was the most beautiful day. It was just gorgeous. And everyone was saying, oh my gosh, the sea's gone so far out. Come and have a look. You know, we can walk around those rocks that we normally snorkel around. Uh, but, you know, Stuart and I were kind of nursing our hangovers. It had been <laughs> pretty rough. And um, we, we made breakfast with some of our friends, but we said, you know what, uh, we're going back to bed. Um, so we decided not to go for a dive and we went back to our room. So it was, it was I don't know, an hour or so later, um, I remember hearing this screaming and shouting and banging of doors. And I thought, my God, who have they let in this hotel? This is dreadful, you know. <laughs> not just not what we expect. They not know that we've got hangovers and tried to pull the pillow over our ears. And, and we did. And then again, a little bit later, we heard this incessant banging. And I thought, fantastic. Now we've picked a hotel that's doing flipping, you know, work on the, on the building. And, you know, and I just thought, this is, just gets better, doesn't it? So Stu got up to see what was going on. And he pulled back the curtain. And I just remember those words. He just said, um, I think you better come and look at this. And I jumped out of bed because I knew by the tone of his voice, something was wrong. And from our third story hotel room, we looked down and the sea was totally around us. Wow. And this banging was a boat being slammed into the side of the hotel and all we could see was water. And there was this like swishing noise and, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I looked down and it was the palm trees being swished around in the water and there was not a soul in sight. It was terrifying. And how, how did that transpire? How, how did you deal with it? What did you do? How did you, how did you cope? It's the first thing I did is I, I grabbed for my video camera. I thought, oh my God, this is, you know, this is yeah. frightening. It's terrifying. It's amazing. It's awesome. And I just, it's just instinctively grabbed my video camera and started filming. Yeah. And then I, I, I remember my first words were, let's see if anyone needs our help and I threw the video camera down but we couldn't see another person everyone had gone so it was like the apocalypse it was just like the end of the world we couldn't see anyone anywhere so we got dressed and uh, you've got that kind of panic thing going on where you're in fear and and you know but you're you're also shocked and you're also scared and all these things uh, you know you've got to be sensible so I remember getting dressed in something that was you know, longer, it would cover, cover my arms, um, but it was thin, so I wouldn't get too hot. So if we had to, you know, spend some time outside, it's what I would get least bitten in by insects and put them right. on a sturdy pair of shoes and that kind of stuff. We opened the door to the corridor to have a look out and oh my gosh, it was like a horror film. There was glass and blood and everything everywhere. And I just kept thinking, why did nobody tell us why did nobody knock on our door why did nobody raise an alarm and then I remembered hearing that screaming and shouting and I just thought you idiot I thought it was kids mucking around and it wasn't but you know this was a very old building with very old doors and thick heavy walls and you know we just we were just oblivious 
Um, but here we were, you know, in the aftermath, and we realised just exactly what had gone on. Um, we tried to get out the hotel, and the water was up to the ceiling of the first floor, so there was there was no chance at that point. Mm. So, um, what did you do then? Did you wait for it to go down, or do, what did you do? We did. It's kind of there's only certain amounts that you can remember really, because you, your mind cuts out a lot. But I remember going back to the room, and and what struck me was whatever had happened. It was so big that we knew that nothing had any monetary value anymore. It, it lost its currency. Yeah. So, you know, wanting to kind of think, okay, let's pack the most expensive things. Let's get the video camera, my jewellery and all that. That's bollocks. It just doesn't work like that. I remember packing, you know, 100 fags that we'd got on the way over there because I thought we could barter with those if we need to. And what, what are we going to survive with? And we just whittled everything that we had Right. Um, we put everything else into suitcases so once this was over no one had to worry about it you know it was all tidy but what we had left with us was you know just two very light bags full of stuff that was going to help us survive and that was it okay so what was the next stage then did you wait till the water went down and then go out or, or what, what happened next yeah it kind of doesn't do that that's the weird thing so where we were it wasn't one massive wall of water it was like the tide came in wave on top of wave on top of wave so it came in very quickly from accounts of everyone else that i'd heard and by the time that we'd seen it it was it was so high um and it, it doesn't it doesn't go out it you know it, it just kind of it it lowers and it got to the stage where we could half swim and half wade out of the hotel and that's what we did and we made it to the opposite side of the gall road and there was just you know the roofs were made of corrugated metal and it was just sheets of it um underneath the water there was glass and brick and you know i slipped um and really hurt my back because you couldn't tell what you were stepping on and we managed to get over to the other side of the road and there were two people there from our dive team um that were sheltering and we said why were you so insistent on us coming over here because they kept telling us to go over there um, and they, they just pointed at the hotel and we looked back and it seemed like the whole hotel was just lilting towards the sea and right. it was just so much to take in. I just, I remember, one of the things I remember is the smell, the stench. I just vomited and vomited and vomited. I can't remember how many times I vomited, but whether it was shock, whether it was fear, whether it was my own body taking over, whether it was the stench, I don't know, but there was everything was oil, sewage diesel death it just stank foul. Yeah. right and from that side of the road did you seek shelter or or did you just wait or shelter of, of sorts you know so we were kind of we were in this bar which um didn't really have any glass or anything on it it was just kind of open air um but we were up and so we could see the water coming in and out again so i was like that i was like the foghorn so what I did is uh, there were people dotted around. The more we waited, the more people we saw. Um, and every time the water went out far enough, then, you know, Stuart and other people that, you know, were fit and healthy, they would run out and they would try and get whatever they could that would help us survive. So we kind of, you know, got what was washed out of the dive centre. So we were picking up BCD jackets, um, you know, the things that keep you afloat, uh, helmets, torches, anything. And I remember we'd grabbed um, some bananas that were floating past and some cans of Coke and we were putting them as high up as possible because, of course, we just didn't know what was going to happen. It felt 
felt like they were, we were flailing around just playing it survival but had no idea what was going to happen. Yes, right. And how did it play out, Michelle? Well, every time the water came back in, I was just like the foghorn out saying, it's coming back, it's coming back. And then everyone would get up high. Um, and it, I don't know how long it was later, some hours later, but we saw Cammy, who owns the dive centre, um, he came down the road with some of his boat boys with him and the people that worked with him at the dive centre. And we shouted at him, you know, Cammy, Cammy. Um, and he just ordered us down. And he was a, he was only young, but he was a formidable, big size, tall, formidable character. And you just did what he said. So he said to get down. So we just grabbed our stuff and we just we did, did what he said. And then he, he said to one of his boat boys something in Singalese. And before we knew it, we were being force marched in the opposite direction. And we were just like, there was just me and Stuart and two others and, and this boat boy, and we were just getting force marched inland. Um, and we went, we went through water and, you know, and then on dry land and then I fell over and then we're up again and then we're in water again. And it was just a blur. Um, and then like a couple of miles inland, I just saw this massive, great big hill. And then he said up there, and I just had nothing left in me, Scott just nothing left in me I was just being sick and had no energy and it was boiling hot and I just remember Stu put his hand behind my back and half carried me up that hill we got to the top and the the doors to Jimmy Lyle's garden opened and it was just strewn with people that had survived the tsunami wearing in whatever they were wearing when it hit right so you were there with the I guess it was the, the community that, that, that had been on the, the beachfront. I guess they'd all just moved up, up the hill to be safe. To, it, was, to be it, safe. Was a, it was a mixture, Scott. People were scattered everywhere. So we had a real mixture of people. There were some people that, are, you know, um, mainly tourists, but people from all different countries. Um, and people that were with us had been scattered. So there were yeah. some members of our dive team that were with us and some that weren't. Um, some people had been scattered um, towards hospitals. Some people had been taken towards monasteries. And, you know, and we were just the people that had been ushered up this hill and ended up in Jimmy Lyle's garden. As it happened, they'd, he'd, he'd got some local people around because he was, he was very... Um, he was a, a, a village elder that was a real entrepreneur, a proper entrepreneur, not like me. Uh, he had like a fleet of lorries and a fleet of ships and he, he kind of employed half of the village basically. So he had a lot of people that had come round to, to help and they were boiling water up, draining their wells and boiling water up so we had something to drink and running around and trying to look after us. Gosh. And it was, oh, it was so humbling. I mean, they're just such incredibly wonderful people you know and how long did you have to uh, stay there how long were you stuck in that hill so we were there i mean we were there for a week but we were there in jimmy's garden we were there for um the best part of a week i don't know um you know it was but it was it was really incredible what we created in that garden we just we just managed to communicate so effectively together even though we all spoke different languages we were able to just understand each other and fit together 
and, and pull our resources together and, and do things. I remember saying to John, a friend of mine, I was saying, John, I, don't, I feel useless. I don't think I'm doing anything. He said, Michelle, you're joking. You're like, you're keeping everyone's spirits high. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a real talent, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but he said, you don't understand. There were several people that would have lost it completely if it wasn't for you. And, you know, and you start to realise that however small your part is, whatever part it is you're playing is vitally important to that small community, that small structure. And in, in lots of ways, it was, it was so beautiful. It was, it was almost like this massive weight had been lifted off your shoulder. I didn't think about my business. I didn't care whether I made the sales or not, or whether we were hitting targets. Um, it was just not important. And it was just like, there's nothing I can do apart from to go with the flow and find whatever it is I have to offer in this situation and bring it. And, and there's nothing more that's required of me. So it was, in some strange way, it was a beautiful time. I understand that. And what what happened when you got home then? You know, uh, get, well, get got, the, the, the Sri Lankans kind of put on this, uh, they, they managed to find some fuel and a minibus. And what they did is they, they limped us <clears throat> through the jungle to Colombo. Yeah. Uh, and because the Gaul Road had gone, you know, so there were... And it was weird on that journey there were pockets of normality and then pockets of total destruction it was just so bizarre to see um, but all the way you know we were kind of we, we got to the um to colombo and they turned the conference center or something into this you know this shelter and we got there and there was just food everywhere and we'd spent a week you know just with hardly anything but surviving and then here we were there were hot showers people taking us to their homes so that we could shower and their homes were all covered in christmas decorations and stuff and we were having hot showers and using a hairdryer to dry our hair and and then going back and having however many courses of food we wanted it was just so bizarre to go from what we had been to this and also horrendous because all the people we'd left back in Hikadua, you know, they didn't have this and we wanted to share it with them. Um, and in, in, inevitably it was, um, it was the Belgian army that got us out. The Belgian army put on a flight because right. we couldn't get a flight for love and the money. I remember my brother had managed to get tickets and he said, Michelle, I've got a ticket for you and Stuart to get back on a BA flight. Um, and I was very grateful, but I couldn't, I couldn't leave my, teammates behind i couldn't leave my dive team behind wow. i felt personally responsible for getting us all back right. um in in one piece and that's what i did i stayed awake i didn't sleep i fought to try and get us all back in one go and and you know in the end it was the belgian air force that that got us back as far as belgium um we couldn't even get the uk to pick us up to get a flight over to belgium to pick us up i mean they were really? they just they just weren't there and in the end, you know, Stuart's dad and my dad and various other people were going to just drive over in convoy and pick us up. I mean, this is, you know, this is really tough stuff. We were in, in tatters with nothing, no passports, no money, you know, hardly anything. And, you know, we were going to be left in the middle of Belgium with, with nowhere to, to go. The mo we got offered 
um, tickets on um, Eurostar. And I was like, great, we've got one person who can't walk, we've got one person with onset septicemia, and you want us to walk across the flipping city. I just, I didn't understand. I didn't want to be a victim, you know, and, and expect people to save us, but I did want somebody to give us a bit of a hand. Yes. Um, in the end, we managed to get um, a flight and they said that they would put on a flight for us and they did. And we arrived back in the UK at Gatwick Airport, I think, in the early hours of the morning um, on New Year's Eve. Mm. And I remember coming off the plane and being ushered through all these lines with police dotted around and people offering us counselling. Would you like some counselling? Because there's only one thing on our mind. And that was our families on the other on the other side of the gates. That's all we wanted. So, yeah, that was a wow big moment. So we are we are recording this at the end of March 2020, and we're in the grips of a global health pandemic. Um, I, I, what, I don't know where to start with this because there's so much there in that in that story. But the, the, what what have you learned from all of that? Um, that you think people listening to this podcast could learn from in terms of how to deal with... I mean, what we're going through just now is nothing compared to that. Um, I don't think it is. Nothing. Um, but what, what, do you, what, what do you think would help people cope with what we're living through at the moment and, 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 and lead into the rest of their lives? Well, I think um, I've spent my life um, trying to understand everything that I've learned because you don't get that many lessons thrown at you and do nothing with it. Anyone who gets those lessons thrown at you and does nothing with it, what a waste of life. Um, it's, it's incredible to be able to witness what human beings do in the face of true adversity. Um, it's, it's, there's, got, there's a beauty to it, Scott. And, you know, and I've, I've made it my life's work. So what I did is when I got back, I, I lost... I lost a lot of the love for my organisation. I didn't realise at the time why. I know now. I look yes. back now and I think, duh, you were not in line with your core values, Michelle. Yes. But at the time, I didn't understand what it was. I just lost the love and I just felt physically sick when I had to go into work. All I wanted to do was the Higgado Village Fund and raise money and you know make people understand what had happened and, and all that kind of stuff. So I spent the next few years learning everything I could about human behaviour to to try and make sense of what I'd witnessed. And over the years, I learned more and more. I became a, a master practitioner in behavior profiling and, and then I created my own tools. So I, and I've got three very, um, very strong stages of, of crisis and what humanity does in that crisis. And I think it's completely relevant because the first stage is fear. You know, whatever happens, you can't control it. Yeah. You've just got to get, got to get through it as quick as possible and in business we're hearing people say you know i need help somebody save me where's my money you know they're all first world problems but it's all related to fear there are people saying they don't know how to cope with working from home and this that and the other it's not life or death but it is still fear stage and we need to get over that as quick as possible the second stage is when it's like realization. It's when we dig deep and find out what it is that we've got to give. So when we were in Jimmy Lyle's garden, it's that reaching in, introspectively looking and saying, what is it that I've got that is worthy at this time? What is worth something to other people that I can bring to the party and share? And that's what I see a lot of people going through at the moment. They are digging deep and thinking, okay, forget what I normally do for a job. What can I offer? 
And only yesterday, Shelley Bridgman, a very good friend of mine, you know, she said that she's going to do some counselling for people on at the NHS, you know, at the front line and stuff. And, and that kind of stuff is just beautiful. And people are volunteering this stuff, you know. Um, and, and that's what the second stage is. It's that understanding who am I, what am I made of, what really motivates me, what are my core values, and what am I going to do when this is all over to make sure that I live in alignment with those core values, because that's when everything flows. And then the third stage is collaboration, and that is the key stage for me. I think that this horrid virus um, we, we don't know what it's going to do yet. Um, what we do know is that it's a global phenomenon, and it's, but it's a global enemy. Now, that's interesting because when we have a global collaborative enemy, we have a shared goal. Mm. And that is absolutely the fertile ground that we need in order to see a massive evolution as us as a race. You know, that's what we need. And I, you've seen my talk, and right before this ever happened, I always said, if we were attacked by aliens, then we would come together as one race. We would learn how to collaborate effectively, and we'd go out there and we'd make massive shifts. We'd move mountains. This is not an alien attack, but it might as well be. It's, it's you know, a very similar thing. It is a global enemy. Yeah. And we have the opportunity now to be able to learn how to collaborate, work together so that we can create something bigger than some of its parts. Right. Wonderful. That's a very strong message. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for sharing that. Can I change tact a little bit with you now and, and, and talk about men? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you, you're the first woman that's been on this podcast. Oh, I really? Uh, yeah. Well done, well done. And, um, us blokes are fairly clueless, uh, which is kind of why we have the Whole Man Academy. Um, um, and it, it's interesting hearing, you know, male perspectives on other men, but you're a woman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you got any experience of sort of man stuff or where men, you know, could be better uh, or where they've had maybe had a light bulb moment or you've had a light bulb moment? That you could share with us and it can be personal or it could just be off the, off the cuff but uh, up to you okay well this this is very personal um and you know the the only man in my life before everyone else is is my husband Stuart and when we were out in Sri Lanka we we'd been together 12 years and we've never got married and there's a very good reason for that um after about seven years into our relationship um this is pretty personal, but about seven years into our relationship, I was at work and I just, I was very, I just felt really ill um, and thought that I'd started my period and I went to the head of HR because I was um, head of client development for a branding agency. And I went to the HR manager and I said, look, I've, I'm really not having a good time. I'm, I'm having a really bad period. I've taken like four painkillers and the pain isn't going and I need to go home and she kind of like rolled her eyes and thought okay early on a Friday afternoon all right then Michelle off you go um, and then what happened is I um I proceeded to um to miscarry and I didn't realize I was pregnant but I was limping home which from from Putney down to Petersfield it's a it's a long journey in rush hour traffic and I was limping home in the most incredible pain and you know the car was a mess and I didn't know what to do 
So I just carried on driving and I got home and I got out the car and I just left the door open. I just walked into the bungalow where I lived. Um, Stuart was there. I walked straight in the house and I walked straight into the shower and put the shower on with all my clothes and everything. Stuart thought I'd been shot. Um, and I, we had no idea that I was, I was pregnant because I wasn't, I wasn't meant to be able to. So, you know, and I'd, I'd had very strange symptoms, so we hadn't picked it up. But hours later, we ended up in hospital and they said, yeah, this is, this is fetal matter is the way that it was broken to me, Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that was a bit of a shock. Um, and I remember they basically said, right, you've got to stay in because we need to operate. Um, and, you know, they turned around and said to Stuart, you, you might as well go home because there's nothing else you can do. And with that, there was a puff of smoke and I, I lost sight of him. And I've never felt so abandoned in my life. Um, mobile phone, phones weren't really what they are back then. Um, and I just couldn't get hold of them the following day. And I'd had the operation and I'd, you know, had all this grief and stuff. And I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't get hold of him. And then, you know, later on managed to reach him and he picked me up. But I'd always thought that when it comes down to it, I don't know if he's going to be there for me. I don't know if I can trust him to be there when I really need him. So for that reason, although we've been together 12 years, we, we'd never we'd never got married or anything, you know, and that was always a thing. Um, and so what happened in the tsunami um, is basically on the night that we were first in Jimmy Lyle's garden, the tsunami um, was meant to be coming again. We heard the news that it was coming again. And I remember sitting in the garden, total quiet just the moonlight and just people just whispering and stuff like that and I remember hearing these sirens and car alarms and screaming and I remember saying shh to everyone and everyone quieting down Um, and as everyone else pricked their ears up and heard what I was hearing they all started screaming and shouting and packing bags and some were crying and some were running about and all sorts pandemonium ensued and I remember thinking I had these French doors behind me and I thought just just take me you know just do it because this is so unfair we can't see anything there's no there's no light there's you know it was almost like just inevitability just kind of washed over me and I was like well go on then if I stay here at least it'll be quick and then as soon as that idea flashed through my head, I thought, I've got to be with Stuart. I don't care what happens as long as I'm with Stuart. So I remember trying to find him and I couldn't find him. And when all, all this pandemonium. And eventually I saw him and I kind of waved to him. I was like, Stuart, Stuart, it's me. And, and he, was lo- he was looking at me, but he just wasn't recognising me. And I was thinking, what, why can't he see me? And again, I was shouting, Stuart, Stuart, it's me. Um, and he looked at me and kind of looked me up and down and then turned away again. So eventually I made my way through the crowd and I got hold of him. I said, it's me. And he said, I know. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to work out how to get you up that mast. And I was like, how are you going to get me up that mast? And he said, Michelle, if I have to get you up in my teeth, I will. Oh, God. Right. And it was just. It was that moment that I just saw straight through to the core of who he was. And I realised that he was putting my life before his own. And that's not the only example. There's three examples when he physically put my life before his. Mm. Um, but that was, that was the turning point for me. And we said, in that moment when we thought the tsunami was coming again, we said, if ever we get out of this alive, we'll do it, we'll get married. Mm. So 
I realized in that moment in time that I could rely on him. I could trust him with my life. And I think the realization that we'd never talked about what had happened before. And I thought that he'd abandoned me. I didn't think for a moment that he was going through as much grief as I was in that time. And he was battling his own demons, but because he wouldn't talk about it, we never got through that, you know? So he, he's a man's man, you know, and he doesn't talk about it. And for him, kids was off the, the menu, off the table. And all I wanted in the aftermath of that, of that miscarriage, I just desperately wanted a baby. I wanted desperately to, to fill that gap. And he was like, no, it's not happening. And now I know because we've talked, now I know it's because he never wanted to put me through that again. He never wanted to see me in that much pain. And that's something that we could have learned such a long time ago if we'd have just talked. Yes. Well, why is it, do you think, I, I mean, thank you for sharing that story, first of all. That, that is a, a wonderful and deeply sad story. But um, thank you for sharing it, Michelle. Um, how do you, how do we overcome that then? I mean, it, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? You know, just talk. But we're not very good at it, are we? You know, and again, this is partly why we started the whole man academy because I, I don't think I'm any good at it either. You know, and if you ask my Samantha, she would say, "No, you're not very good at that, Scott." <laughs> why is it? Well, I can't. I can't answer why. I can't answer why. What I do know is that. Yeah. Stuart and I have been together 27 years now um, and I love him to bits. We did, we got, we went back and we got married on the beach in Sri Lanka and we had a <laughs> wedding with Lovely. a couple of people yeah. and a, uh, with a couple of people who had been in the tsunami with us. And, um, and now, you know, if we need to talk, I just, I just, I just say, I'm going to, I'm going to peel the onion layers now. But one of the things that has helped um, is because I've created these analysis tools, yeah. um, you know, Stu, Stu will do his analysis, even though he, he doesn't like doing that kind of stuff, he will. And it's actually, it's having fun with it because, you know, he can look at his core values and laugh hysterically at the fact that we are complete opposites. And we just make a big joke of it. You know, we can look at our behavior profiles and we can see that we're complete opposites, but actually understand each other. And yeah. And, and we can see that we fit together like a jigsaw piece then. So to me, it's just, it's just peeling back those onion layers, you know, and sometimes he's a little bit like, okay, we're going to peel back the onion layers. And he's like, you know, no, no, I want to get away. And I'm like, no, we're coming off. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, just have to force it. But there are, there are different ways of doing it. You know, for some people, it might be, you know, to have a bottle of wine or a few beers in front of a, of a fire or a, you know, a fire pit in the garden. For some people, it's, you know, going on a long bike ride together. For some people, it's, you know, going away for a weekend. But whatever it is, it's taking time out to address those things and not allow them to slip away without that communication. Right. OK. OK. So if, if I was to ask you to recommend something um, to our listeners uh, to help them, what, what, what would you like? Is it, would it be a book? I will come back to your 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 tools. I think towards the end, actually, I think we should we should give that a, a shout out in a minute or two. But something else, is it a resource or a podcast or or something that you can think about that would open them up or help them at least think about themselves from that different perspective you've just beautifully described to me there, Michelle. 
I think there are lots of different things you can do to introspectively look at yourself and you can't force people down one route or another. Yeah. You know, I think it's um, it's a really good question, but one that I don't have the ultimate answer to. I don't. I think it's just a question of actually setting that time aside and saying we will do it. Um, there's a there's a great book and I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself now by not remembering the name of it. Is it The Five Aspects of Love? Right. OK. Uh, and it, I, it's an old book, but it's it's brilliant. And I will I'll, I'll look it up, and um and and perhaps perhaps you can add it to, <laughs> to the notes of this podcast. I think it's the five aspects of love or something like that. And basically, it's although it's really old fashioned, it talks in very basic terms about the uh, the different needs that people have in a relationship. That was have you got it? The five languages of love. Yes, that's it. Brilliant. So what I realised from that book and this is something we read many years ago when Stuart is outside in his dressing gown and his boots defrosting my car before I go to work <laughs> that is an expression of love now when I look out the car and he says oh I've defrosted your car I'm like oh, gee thanks could have done that with half a kettle of warm water and I didn't appreciate that actually that was him showing me that he loves me and yes. and therefore giving him you know what he needs to say thank you i really appreciate that um and not knowing and understanding that his language of love one of his languages of love is actually being fed he loves it when i cook for him <laughs> and, I'm, and i'm just like to me it's it's nothing but actually taking a little bit more time putting a bit of love even into a sandwich you know just the little touches something like that that makes it more of a thing that that's talking in his language and and that's what he wants he's not so interested in me telling him gushing all the time i love you i think you're wonderful he's, that doesn't bother him at all and yet it might do the other way around it might be something i need i need him to tell me he loves me i need him to stroke me i need him to you know to show me affection um and and that's a big difference between us the answers are in that book and i love that book Oh, right. Okay, guys, you need to pick up a copy of that book. It's going to improve your love life, according to Michelle, the behaviour expert. <laughs> so thank you, Michelle. That has been, that has been amazing. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for opening up and telling us two very personal stories. Uh, and the connection is, is clear and, and the learning there for everyone is, is clear. How, how might people uh, find out more about you and learn more about what you offer in terms of your, your profiling and all the other things that you do? Well, I'm all about collaboration, Scott, you know, so just just pick up the phone, just call me, connect with me on LinkedIn, just send me a message. I love relationships. So for me, that comes before anything. The relationship is really important. What have you got that you can share with me? What have I got that I can share with you? Okay. I'm the only Michelle Mills porter on the planet. MMP, so. kiss, kiss. There's always a kiss, kiss after MMP every time I get a, a note. <laughs> <laughs> Not everyone gets those scars. Oh, I see. Oh, I'm special. <laughs> Excellent. I like that. Okay. Well, Michelle, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much for joining us on the Whole Man Academy podcast. It's my pleasure. I absolutely love what you're doing, Scott. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Whole Man Academy podcast. Now, are you receiving our weekly emails? If not, you're missing out. Our Whole Man Academy weekly email is changing the game for men around the world using cutting-edge psychology, game-changing thinking strategies and inspiring tips and stories from people you should have heard of but likely never have. So if you want to live more, be more and experience more, 
go and sign up, visit wholemanacademy.com forward slash movement. <laughs>